What does being healthy mean to you? For many people, it's following one fad or another. There is always something newer and greater out there. Eat more protein, eat less. Someone always has an angle and they're willing to sell it to you. Some promise to burn fat, build muscle, cure all manner of health conditions. Some even want to extend your lifespan. As we know, or we should know, trendy diets aren't always the magic solutions they're cracked up to be. In some cases, extreme diets can lead to malnutrition, vitamin overdoses, and permanent liver damage. In the worst cases, that superfood smoothie could end up being your last meal. So let's explore the age-old question. Can you have too much of a good thing? That is, with the exception of Snoo Snoo for you Futurama fans out there. Today, we're going to talk about a man named Basil. Maybe he should have stayed with his namesake because his love of carrots, in the end, was deadly. I'm Scott Parrish, and you're listening to Dying to Eat. Each episode, we focus on different countries or interesting stories as we explore the relationship between food and death around the world. If you love food, history, fun stories, and listening to me mispronounce words, then you've got a great show in store. So make sure you stick around to the end to see what's cooking this week. Before we get into the meat and potatoes of this episode, I'd like to give you a quick disclaimer that I'm not a nutritionist and I'm not here to give medical advice or tell you what to put into your body. Any medical information I cover in this episode comes from peer-edited scientific journals and I do my best to always provide the most accurate information possible. But ultimately, I'm an enthusiastic explorer in the world of food and I'm here to share with you my thoughts and findings along the way. So, the first half of the 20th century was plagued by the presence of two world wars and the slow but steady reconstruction of many major economies. After decades of rationing, starvation, and simple foods, the economic growth of the 50s and 60s proved to be a foundation for the opulence of the 70s. In both the United States and the UK, dinner parties began to come back in fashion for the first time since the late 1800s and the newly formed middle class eagerly embraced the luxuries their parents had never been able to afford. Fatty foods and dining out also became extremely popular during the 70s, but with every new cultural trend comes a countercultural mirror. In this case, it was the early beginnings of dieting and the health food craze that we still see today. By the late 1960s, a British man named Basil Brown had joined the search for a healthy diet that he believed that he had found that he had found what everyone else was looking for. For him it was carrots. According to Basil's wife, Brenda, his typical daily diet consisted of carrot juice and fruit for both breakfast and lunch with a dinner of eggs, tomatoes, and cheese. She said that she often cooked meat for their meals, but her husband just rarely ate it. He had this theory that a vegetarian diet was the right one. He began taking vitamin A tablets and drinking fresh carrot juice every day, an entire gallon of it. Now, I know what you're thinking. That's a lot of carrot juice. And you know what? Sure is. Carrot juice is supposed to be great for your eyesight and your immunity system. And that's true if you live long enough to reap the benefits. 
A gallon of carrot juice has a very high amount of vitamin A in it. On top of the vitamin tablets he was taking, it was just too much for him. Stay around long and you will hear me say only moderation in excess. That wasn't basil, and in the end, he overdosed on vitamin A. It's strange to think of carrots and overdoses in the same sentence, but vitamin overdoses can be just as serious as drug overdoses, as poor basil discovered in the end. Or maybe he didn't discover. Maybe he passed away without realizing what happened. But my God. He'd been taking the vitamin tablets and drinking carrot juice for years but just not in those high quantities. He was on this diet for 10 days straight before he died. And in that time, now think about this, his skin turned bright yellow as his liver began to deteriorate. The issue was also exacerbated by the fact that Basil wasn't getting much fat in his diet. So there was nothing to help his body absorb some of the extra nutrients while his liver worked to expel the rest. By the end of the 10 days, Basil Brown was dying to eat, but it's already too late. The doctor who performed the autopsy said that his liver was indistinguishable from that of someone who died from alcohol poisoning, even though Basil didn't drink at all. After Basil's death, his family doctor told investigators that both he and the specialist had warned Basil for several years that his over-the-top intake of vitamin A was extremely dangerous and they believed he was suffering from some kind of uh, psychological addiction. The doctor had, to say, had this to say about Basil himself. Basil was an intelligent man, but he had a low opinion of doctors. Hmm, that, that's interesting to say the least. Unfortunately, Basil Brown's death seems to be the most notable thing about his life because there's really few records of him that survived the transition from that period uh, till now. Some articles refer to him as a scientist, while others call him an addict or a health nut. I don't know if you eat yourself to death. I don't know if you're a health nut or not. Whatever the truth is, the doctor who performed Basil's autopsy put it this way. Anything taken in sufficiently large amounts can be poisonous. And he added, I think that that must be regarded as a form of addiction. That's pretty heavy, I think. So Basil's death is often cited in a few short sentences in an online list of strange deaths. But he's certainly not alone in taking extreme measures on his quest for a long, healthy life. The lingering presence of juice fasting in present-day America is proof, proof enough of that, with celebrities and social media stars often sharing recipes of what they swear by. The perfect blend of liquids and fruits and veggies to give you the body that you've always dreamed of and skin so clear Greek gods themselves would be driven insane with jealousy. And who would forget the infamous Dr. Phil episode with a woman named Jillian Mighty Epperly? She had no medical experience and no scientific background. And she claimed her Jilly Juice blend would cure cancer, autism, homosexuality, as well as regenerate missing limbs. You know, I can't pass up a softball like that. I guess the juice worked. At least one person died from this diet and they had all of their limbs. Not only that, they weren't gay. They were dead. Now, guess what this was in jelly juice? It was a mixture of water, salt, and fermented cabbage. 
Who would have guessed cabbage water was the secret to being straight? And you know I had to look. The number one country in the world for cabbage consumption is China at 33 million tons per year. I couldn't find an estimated number of how many of the population is gay, though a report from Statista said that the LGBT Chinese community is largely made of people with a bachelor's degree or more, employed full-time, and located primarily in the large cities. While this silliness doesn't compute to anything meaningful, my takeaway is if you have a cabbage water addiction, being gay shouldn't be what you're worried about. If you were alive in the 1990s, you'll remember the endless parade of SlimFast ads. They promoted an all-liquid diet with all kinds of uh, flavors. Luckily, they all had that, how would you say it, this incredible wet, chalky taste that stuck to the back of your throat. Yet, people crowded their refrigerator shelves for almost three decades, and in fact, I'm pretty sure there's people out there still drinking it today. The most popular liquid diet these days comes in a smoothie form. Now, don't get me wrong, there's nothing wrong with a good smoothie. And as we have learned from Basil Brown earlier, though, you can have too much of a good thing. A lot of these juice and smoothie diets are called cleansers or detoxes. And while smoothies can provide a tasty boost of vitamins and minerals, they're also notorious for being extremely high in sugar and carbs. There's no evidence that they cleanse or detox your body of anything, actually. In fact, according to science, your body is already equipped with everything you need to get the toxins out. That's why you have a liver and kidneys, lungs, and skin. And as long as you keep track of what you're eating so that you get the nutrients you need without overdoing it, all those things are going to do their job. I know this guy that was diagnosed with liver damage. He told me, I don't know why. I drink eight glasses a day. I replied, I think they mean water, not whiskey. So, all liquid diets are potentially deadly. What about people that can't eat solid food for one reason or another? Well, while there's a, always a better way to get a variety of different foods, there are a few liquid foods that meet the majority of your nutritional needs on their own. One good example is Ensure, or the children's version, Pediasure. Still, they're meant to be used as a supplement to, the, to your diet. And you know, personally, I'm always suspicious of any health advice that encourages me to stay away from my grill. So, the tale of Basil Brown is kind of sensational when it comes to a headline, and it sticks in our memories because of the strange circumstances that it was involved in. But he certainly wasn't the first person to struggle with finding a healthy diet. In fact, one in five deaths around the world is related to a poor diet. And studies are shown that a poor diet contributes to early death more than smoking or high blood pressure. Between news headlines, daytime talk shows, social media, and the constant ads that all remind us time and again that we need to eat healthy in order to live enough to see retirement can really be confusing and overwhelming. They all have con contradictory advice about how to avoid eating yourself into an early grave, and even doctors disagree about what the right answers are. I won't pretend like I have the answers. Here on Dying to Eat, my mission isn't to tell you what to eat. It's about exploring the world of food and 
sharing with you what I find. What I found in research for this podcast is that there are quite a few diets that you might want to strike off your list of things when you're writing your next year's New Year's resolutions. But before we get to those deadly diets, I'd like to address one of the biggest questions I've had while working on this episode. Where did the idea of dieting come from in the first place? Surely Neanderthals weren't turning down good food because they were worried about a few extra pounds. So where along the line did someone finally say, hey, I wonder if my food could be killing me? Our early ancestors basically ate whatever they could get their hands on. And since meat was harder to get when you had to fight your prey with rocks and sticks and also fend off other predators, they mostly ate plants. This was in the days before cooking too, which meant your meat was going to be eaten raw. And there were no refrigerators, so you generally had to be pretty quick about it or you were going to be dead from eating rotten meat. Being a particularly good hunter wasn't necessarily a good thing for your health in long term either because eating a ton of raw liver was a great way to end up like our friend Basil. Whoever thought that vitamin A could be so dangerous? Many anthropologists now believe that a lot of our protein actually come from eating bugs when I talk about our, our ancestors. I'm sorry. When I talk about our ancestors, many anthropologists now believe that a lot of their protein came from eating bugs rather than meat. Maybe I'll tell you about the Army survival training sometime. I mean, eating a grasshopper isn't as bad as it sounds when you're really hungry. I promise. Anyway, small creepy crawlies are really easier to come by and a lot less dangerous than something that might want to eat you back. And when we finally mastered fire, that's when things really got cooking. Meat became a lot safer to eat and way tastier when we start cooking it. And I'm thankful every time I get to stand beside a fire and cook some good barbecue. Now, it would be impossible to cover the whole history of dieting across the world in this podcast episode. But beyond eating bugs and learning how to cook things, I'd like to go over some notable highlights on the road from the Neanderthal till now. The word diet actually comes from the Greek word Dieta. Now I'm going to spell that for you in case I mispronounced it. It's D-I-A-I-T-A. Dieta. Which was the idea of living in a way that promoted both physical and mental health. Both the Greeks and the Romans had some idea that eating certain foods more than others was good for your health. Beyond that, it was a lot, of, whole lot of guessing and experimenting. Science may have come a long way since then, but it's weird to think how many of us are still in the same boat as our ancient ancestors. In 1553, a Venetian nobleman named Alves Cornad. Okay, let me get my let me get my mind around this one. Alves Corneiro. He wrote a book that's often credited as being the first published diet guide. The English translation of this book is called The Sure and Certain Method of Attaining a Long and Healthful Life. And in this book, he outlined not only his actual diet, but also his philosophy on dieting itself. One thing to keep in mind about the late 1550s, which is when he came out with this book, it wasn't a great time to be over 65 anyway. Since people didn't have half the access to medical technology that we do today, most people didn't live very long. 
and those that did generally were destined to continue to work until they were just physically incapable of doing so. And most people died in poverty. That's unfortunately just the way history is. This is also a time when most people in the Western world believed that suffering was a natural part of life. Since there's nothing they could do to stop it, they believed that it was, you know, it was part of God's plan. And many argued that they shouldn't even be trying to find ways to extend their life because it was greedy and unnatural to live longer than what God meant for you to live. Conero, that's how I'm going to pronounce his name anyway, Conero, he was a 40-year-old man who had been struggling with obesity and declining health for a long time. And he completely disagreed with that thought set. He argued something that I think most of us would agree with. Living a healthier, longer life is awesome and definitely something we should be trying to do. He pointed out what now seems to be obvious, which is that you can maintain a healthier, if you can maintain your health as you age, then you can keep doing things longer. And he argued that old people shouldn't carry a stigma of having one foot already in the grave. And Canero's diet seemed to have worked out pretty well for him, considering that he lived to be about 100 years old when the majority of his critics died in their 50s and maybe made it to their 60s. It wasn't until the Victorian age that people in the Western world started dieting for aesthetic reasons. With women trying to achieve that now-fabled hourglass figure and men trying to ditch their beer belly, it was a whole new time for the way people ate. Even the famous poet Lord Byron committed himself to a vegetarian diet and drank a tonic of vinegar and water with every meal. A contemporary of Byron's named William Batting, Banning was also interested in finding a way to slim down. So Banting was the director of the finest funeral home in London, let's, let's, let's say. That's the, probably the best way to put it. His family was responsible for conducting the funerals for the royal family for generations. He'd struggled with his weight for most of his adult life, and he had worked with a fleet of doctors and was trying every diet, every exercise plan, every spa treatment they could think of to help him lose those extra few pounds, and it just wasn't working. So Banding was in his 70s by the time he and his doctor devised this plan that seemed to finally work. It worked so well, in fact, that Banning wrote a pamphlet called Letter on Copulence Addressed to the Public, which is now basically a, it's basically a self-published open letter to the public that described his history of failing weight loss plans. The pamphlet became an overnight sensation and went on to inspire a lot of other diets and you can actually find copies of it online if you're really interested in it and very curious about it. So what's Banning's breakthrough diet? Well, for starters, instead of eating three large meals a day, he ate four smaller meals spaced throughout the day, with each meal consisting of white meat, greens, fruit, and dry wine. He made a point to cut sugar, starches, and dairy out as much as possible, which is the same advice that many nutritionists still give us today. So Banting made a small fortune from selling this pamphlet, but since he was already making plenty of money from his funeral business, he donated all of the profits to charity. Now, what a guy. That's fantastic. Thanks, Will. Moving forward on our timeline, our next stop is early 1900s, when an American doctor set out to revolutionize the way 
people approached eating. Her name was Lulu Hunt Peters, and she spent the majority of her career trying to spread public education about the relationships between your health and your diet. She wrote a plethora of newspaper articles, participated in radio talk shows for years, and went on tour giving lectures to everyday people about how to improve their health through dieting. In 1918, her book, Diet and Health with Key to the Calories, is considered to be the first best-selling diet book in America, and people loved it not only because it put a complicated concept into terms every day people could understand, but it also was full of jokes and references that made it feel, you know, uh, more like a trendy friend is giving you reliable advice instead of preaching to you about your weight. Okay, side note, I love dad jokes. And here's one for you. There's this diet coach that was, that sent all of her clients to a paint store. Do you know why? She heard you could get thinner there. Back to the book. It is littered with with crudely drawn illustrations, mostly stick figures that demonstrate various concepts and make witty comments. Peters is often credited as the woman who introduced America to the concept of calories as a form of portion control. Prior to Peters' book, most people had no idea what a calorie was or there might be an ideal amount for them. After the book's publication, a piece of bread became 135 calories of bread. This advice was offered to all Americans, but Peter's main goal was to influence women, and a lot of her message was meant specifically for them. You see, Peter's career began against a backdrop of the First World War when when food rationing was an essential component to victory. Women were losing their fathers and sons, her brothers, uncles, husbands, to war. Most of the few luxuries they had back then were being confiscated for rationing, like their jewelry, their cutlery, and anything that could be made out of valuable metals, even their nylon stockings, which was being made into parachutes. A popular trend at the time was to take charcoal from your cooking fire, mix it with a little Vaseline, and draw a line down the back of each leg so it looked like you were wearing stockings. (laughs) That's pretty good. They also had to take on all the work that their male relatives had been responsible before the war, and many of them took extra jobs working in factories and communication centers to assist the war efforts. As busy as they were, they were really motivated to do everything possible to end the war so they could be reunited with their loved ones. And slowly, life came back around to normal. Peter's book, tapped into that feeling women had for wanting to do their part, explaining that by restricting their calorie intake, they could not only gain a fashion model waistline, but also contribute to the winning war to winning the war by making their rations stretch further. In her book, she said, For every pang of hunger you feel, we have a double joy knowing that we are saving worse pangs for some little children and knowing that for every pang we feel, we lose a pound. Man, I don't know how motivational that is. That sounds like some guilt to me. Anyway, most doctors today don't recommend starving yourself as a method of patriotism or for weight loss. Still, Lulu Hunt Peters was one who opened the door to modern health education by introducing Americans to the concept of healthy eating. Now that we know where how we got here, 
let's look at a few more unfortunate individuals that went the way of Basil Brown. When you were a kid, did anyone ever tell you that you shouldn't swallow your chewing gum because it would stay in your stomach for seven years? I know I did, and I believed it. But it turns out that gum doesn't stay in your stomach, taking up valuable space for seven years. It's actually true that your body can't digest gum, but it passes through your system and it comes along, it comes out like, like corn. Some scientists are actually looking at the benefits of using gum to prevent complications after colon surgery, so accidentally swallowing a piece now and then definitely won't kill you. But just as you can eat something that you should not overdo, gum can put you in a sticky situation too. Take Samantha Jenkins, for example. She was a teenage girl in the UK who reportedly chewed gum for every day and she would chew about 14 sticks every day, and she always swallowed the gum. The gum built up in her stomach because there was way too much of it, and it prevented her body from absorbing minerals from the other food that she ate. One day, in 2011, she complained about having a headache and suddenly collapsed into a violent seizure. She fell into a coma, and fortunately, she passed away a few days later. In 2020, Okay, guys, 2020, a 54-year-old American also became victim of his own sweet tooth. They say when it comes to black licorice, either you love it or you hate it, and this guy was definitely on the love it side. He ate two big packages of it every day for weeks, and he wouldn't be on this list if it turned out well for him. This story comes from a case study report where he wasn't named, but it Apparently, he had been eating a lot of candy for years, and his candy of choice was always those chewy fruit candies. For whatever reason, he got a hankering for some black licorice one day, so he made the switch. And what he didn't know about black licorice was it's chock full of glyceric acid. When the acid combines with your stomach acid, it sets off a chemical reaction. In some doses, it's not a big deal, but when you eat a bunch of it every day for weeks, it just might be your last meal. The guy from this case study ended up having a heart attack, and there's strong evidence that it was directly linked to his black licorice habit. Licorice isn't the only sweet treat that'll give you a heart attack. In 2010, a 30-year-old New Zealand woman named Natasha Harris died of a heart attack after reportedly drinking two and a half gallons of Coca-Cola every day for years because of her Coke habit. Wait, what? Anyway, her habit, Natasha had severe tooth problems and had many of them pulled, and at least two of her children were born without tooth enamel. But she ignored all these red flags and numerous warnings from her doctor and her family. And wait a minute, another side note here. I know this guy that drinks nothing but Coke. He doesn't even drink water. And he's skinny as a rail. I think he's a miracle of science, actually. Anyway, back to Natasha. After news of Natasha's death made headlines worldwide, Coca-Cola Company made a public comment on the situation, stating that even water can deal, kill you if you drink too much of it. <laughs> Way to spin it, corporate America. Well... I don't know about you, but after all this talk about food, I'm dying to eat, and I've got a recipe that won't kill you. In honor of our old friend Basil Brown, this week's recipe is a delicious carrot pudding. 
The origins of carrot pudding are unknown, but there are two main schools of thought of when and where it came from. It is the predecessor for carrot cake. One, myth, one theory is that it began in Ireland in the 16th century where there's a version of it that's basically a stuffed carrot that was really popular. Another theory is that it derived from a uh, Punjab dish in India that's time-honored and has been around for ages. Most significant, in my opinion, is the popularity of carrot pudding in World War II Britain. Like many things in that time, sweeteners weren't rationed. Sweeteners were rationed. But since carrots weren't rationed, they were frequently used as a substitute sweetener by the British populace. However it came to be, carrot pudding is classic. And if you haven't tried it, I highly recommend you give it a go and following along with my recipe, come up with your own interpretation. Let's get cooking, or in this case, let's get baking. We'll need half a teaspoon of salt, a teaspoon of each baking soda, cinnamon, and nutmeg, three tablespoons of melted unsalted butter, one cup of white sugar, one cup of grated carrots, one cup of crushed walnuts, and one cup of chopped fresh dates one and a half cups of all-purpose flour, and some olive oil. While I generally try to stay away from special ingredients or equipment for this podcast, this is one that requires a deep dish pie pan or a comparable pan that's oven safe and a potter pan that will fit inside it. I generally use a roasting pan when I do this kind of cooking. Begin by preheating the oven to 250 degrees Fahrenheit and I made sure to specify because I'm happy to say we now have listeners in Europe, Africa, Asia, and Australia. Thank you, no matter where you are, for listening. I appreciate all of our listeners. Back to the baking. Next thing we'll need to do is combine all of our ingredients except for the olive oil, carrots, dates, and walnuts, which we'll set aside to later. Now, stir it all together so it's well mixed. The mixture will be dry and crumbly. Now, maybe that's not a technical term, but I'm sure you'll get it. If you've ever had a cookie that just wouldn't stay together, then you know what I'm talking about. That's the kind of crumbly mix that it should be. So once you get your crumbly mix, go ahead and add in the remaining ingredients, except for the oil. For anyone who's been following my cooking adventures through the years, you know that I love using my hands. So I'm going to encourage you right here to get your digits dirty and mix everything up really well. Next... Coat the inside of your pan lightly with olive oil. Then fill the pan with your mixture. Make sure it's distributed evenly so it'll bake evenly. Place the pie pan inside the roasting pan or whatever the equivalent that you're using and add water into the roasting pan until it's roughly halfway to the top of the pie pan. Carefully place the roasting pan in the oven and loosely drape a piece of tin foil over the roasting pan to trap the steam in. Let it bake for four and a half hours, and keep in mind that you're going to need to replenish the water, so every hour or so, check and make sure. While the pudding is baking, it's also time to make your sauce to pour over it. In a mixing bowl, beat one egg really well, and then add three tablespoons of lemon juice and half a cup of white sugar. Whip it over low heat until it's completely smooth and then set it aside. Now listen to what I just said. When I say low heat, I mean low heat. 
This whole dish is an exercise in patience. And if your heat's too high, the egg's going to cook, then you're going to have to strain it out of your topping. Once your pudding has cooked all the way through, let it cool and then evenly brush your lemon topping over the top. If you're not planning on eating it right away, store it in an airtight container and it'll stay nice and fresh for you. I've been your host Scott Parrish and I'd like to thank you for listening to Dying to Eat. I'd also like to give a shout out to AG in Kansas City. She reached out on our Instagram page and told me that I made her laugh when I said paprika in a recent episode. Well, I'm a Southern gentleman, and you should know that in the South, we can add an extra syllable or two to just about any word. Thank you for commenting. This show is made possible by listeners like AG and all the rest of you. I really appreciate your support. If you like what you've heard and you'd like to hear more, look out for new episodes every week on your favorite podcast platform. Drop us a like, a comment, or a smile, and follow the show to see what's happening next. And if you have an interesting subject that we might cover, let us know. And until next time, stay lively.